It will be verses 7 to 10 of Revelation and chapter 19. It's a very, very beautiful subject that we're going to start on this morning. We're going to look from verses 7 to 10 and see what the picture is. And we're going to speak on the church as the bride of Christ and what that actually means. When I look at what it really implies and what it means, the church, the bride of Christ, that is the relationship between Christ and the church, the, the union that exists between Christ and his church, union. To unite, you see, means to bring two things together. That's what it means to unite something. And the union is the bond that exists between the two. We're going to look at the bond that exists between Christ and his church. We're going to explore that relationship. Firstly, in a corporate way, Christ and his church. And then that link, that bond, that union that there is between each individual member of the church and Christ himself. Revelation 19 is is going to give us this beautiful picture of the final coming together of Christ and the redeemed. That's what it is. It's a picture of that. It's a glorious picture. It's a lovely picture. It's actually a wedding scene. And that's a lovely picture. And it's a beautiful snapshot. And it's like we're going to take out the divine wedding album, you know, where we do that when we go to somebody's place and you take out the wedding album and you look at the pictures. We're going to flick it over and we're going to try and explore just what this marriage is all about because it's, it's a beautiful snapshot. You've got the bridegroom and you've got the bride. What you've got is a picture of Christ and you've got a picture of the church. It's a glorious church. It's a glorious church. At the present time, we struggle and we're spotted and we're, we're hindered and we're weak and we fail. But the picture we're going to look at is the picture of a glorious church, a church that's glorified. There it is. Well, let's read it first before we go into the detail. Verse 7 of Revelation 19. Remembering from verse 6 that there's been this great voice, this thunderous voice, and it is a thunderous voice. And he said, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And then comes these sweet strains of beauty. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour or glory to him. Notice that. Give honour and glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. You ready now? You can get the picture of what you're going to look at. One who has been made ready, flick the page of the album, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Clean and bright is the meaning there. The fine linen is the righteousness of saints, or the righteous acts of the saints, of the redeemed, of the people of God. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says to me, These are the true sayings of God. John's overwhelmed for a moment. He's in the presence of a 
scene that is so beautiful, almost ethereal, something which is heavenly, which has the touch of the divine, which overwhelms his spirit to worship. And he falls at the feet of the angel, who himself, that angel, would have been a glorious being. He fell at his feet to worship him. He said, the angel says to him, See thou, do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren. I'm a servant of yours and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Tremendous reading, isn't it? Beautiful reading. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The voices just died down. Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This is the truth of the kingdom of God. When you speak of the kingdom of God, no matter what title you give it, no matter what context you put it in, the meaning of the kingdom of God, in its essence, it means the absolute reign of God. That's the core meaning of the words, the kingdom of God. And here we have it, the kingdom. God's rule, absolute and unopposed. God's will, perfectly and most powerfully and completely done. That's what we have in this picture. The grand climax of all that God has willed. One, for the exaltation of his own son. Do you see how the thing began? Give glory to him. That's his prime purpose, is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to happen, and it will happen. He will head up all things in the Christ. He will place him central in the final eternal scene. And he will place him superior far above all in his glory and in his splendor. And his purposes are to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, to exalt his son, and to bless the redeemed of God. The purpose is to bring Christ and his people together in a bond of eternal blessedness and love. That's what he intends to do. And what we're getting here is a snapshot of this marvellous glory that lies ahead of us and the will of God will be ultimately done. See, the Ephesian epistle actually sets this out, especially in chapter 1, where he explores what God really intends to do. And he says, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. That is what he really thought. We would never have understood, we would never have imagined the blessing that God would conceive. It's beyond us. It's a mystery, but he's revealed it to us. And according to his own good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensational, and the final climax, the dispensation of the fullness of times, he gathers together in one all things in Christ. He will be central, superior, and supreme. Everything else around him will bow the knee to him. Everything else around him will be there because of him. And yet the truth is he will be over it all as one who, to whom the honour is justly due. Let us give honour to him. Then he says, In whom also we, in whom also we have obtained 
and inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Christ is there in the fullness of his glory, inheriting all things which are under him, but we share in that inheritance. It has been predetermined, predestined that we should be there to share in the blessings which he has. And the God has purposed that the Lord Jesus should be exalted, that his people should be blessed, and that the two, the two, Christ and his redeemed, should be brought together in an inseparable, unbreakable bond of eternal love and eternal happiness. Fellow Christians, that's what lies ahead of you and I. Look past the dim present. Forget the tumult that exists in the world. Get the eye of faith and look right into heaven itself and see the picture painted for us. Christ and the church, Christ and the bride brought together in harmony and in happiness and an eternal bond of unity, affection, love. That's the picture we've got here. The picture of a wedding celebration. The bridegroom is the lamb. The lamb who has suffered and he has bled and he has died. The bride is the redeemed of the Lord. You see, there's been a process to get to this point. This is the climax of the union, the bringing together of Christ and his church, the bringing together of Christ and his redeemed. This is the final climax of the ages. But there's been a lot going on, you know, before this actually happened. The whole thing is a love story. And Revelation 19 in this picture is the climax of a love story. It's the ultimate wedding picture, if you like, of the bride and groom brought together. She in the splendor of her loveliness. He in the fullness of his glory and his grace and of his love. And you see, Ephesians brings these truths out again. Chapter 5 makes it beautifully, beautifully clear what has gone on. Chapter 5 of Ephesians and verse 25 says, Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for it. You talk about the infinite this morning, we pondered it. We speak about the eternal this morning, we pondered it. There is enough to make you bow again. A love whereby he gave himself for it. That was the start of the process. That was the beginning of the opening up of the plan. Verse 26 that he might sanctify and cleanse it. He gave himself for it. He has sanctified her. He has set her apart completely. He has cleansed her so beautifully that she now, in verse 27, has removed every spot, every wrinkle, or any such thing. He has done that in the time that is present now, he has done and is doing that and has done that in the time that has passed before now. He will continue doing that until the final climax when he comes. He will be washing, he will be sanctifying, he will be using the word in order to remove every spot, every wrinkle or any such thing. If that's not enough, in her imperfection, in your imperfection and in my imperfection, at the present time, he will nourish and he will cherish her. You see, there's affection in the cherishing. 
And there is food in the nourishment. There is warmth in the relationship, which is going on even now in preparation for the final climax, the grand day of presentation, because that's what he's going to do. Having made her holy, it says in verse 27, and without blemish, he will present her to himself a glorious church. A glorious church. The result of his own actions. And what we're looking at here is that wonderful scene of perfection and beauty when the church, the bride, is presented to the heavenly bridegroom. Can you not see the beauty of this? What the Lord Jesus is doing, and when he's finished that work of perfecting, how the bride will be there. It's a picture of this. A bride in her sheer beauty, a beauty that is marked with an absolute perfection. You can't find a flaw in her face. You can't find a wrinkle in her skin. You can't find a spot on her garment. She is there in perfection. She is radiant with expectation. She is so glowing with suitability for the bridegroom. That's the picture that you've got. And as you look at it, you say, out of Zion, perfection of beauty, God has shined. There it is. She is his handiwork. And at this wedding scene, the two are being brought so close together in a bond that is so close that it is just as though two have become one. Like that. See? Now this mystery is great. He has made her of his flesh and of his bones. And that means... He has made this church, this company of the redeemed, these redeemed ones, he has made them so much like himself that it is though the two have become one. And somehow this bride, with all her imperfections in the past, is not only now suited to him, she is joined to him, and the one, as it were, is lost in in the beauty of the other. And this mystery is great, but I speak as to Christ and as to the church. There's something glorious about this, isn't there? There's always something glorious about heaven. That's what makes the book of Revelation so wonderful to read. There's thoughts that you've never, ever had. And you look ahead and you think, when I stand before the throne, and I'm dressed in beauty not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. We're going to see this. Fellow Christian, we're going to enjoy this. We're going to know the warmth of his love in a way we've never known it here on earth. And there'll be not a cloud between. We'll see him face to face. Not struck with dire amazement and dumb, but triumphing in grace. This is what Revelation's all about. It's to make us look ahead. It's to make us see the beauties that we're destined for. And this is a scene of beauty. And it's a scene of love. It's a wedding scene. The groom, he's proved his love by dying for her. There's no greater proof. No greater proof. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. We touched some of these things this morning. He has proved his love by dying for her. And she has proved her love by serving him in the betrothal period. 
the period before the marriage, when they were destined to be joined, yes, that was as it were when they, at the time when they were engaged, if you like, we went through this last time. But now in the waiting time for the marriage, and we're in that waiting time, we prove our love for him because we keep his commandments and we do his work, work and we seek to fulfil his service. And the love is there on the both sides. And as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is our destiny to come to this point. And the artist, he's, he's painting this picture because this is a picture book, the book of Revelation. And he's painting it as a wedding scene, the whole climax of it. You will never get the blessing of Revelation till you realise it's a picture book. And you start to think in terms of pictures. And it'll all light up for you, the glorious meaning of it. And it is, the betrothal is at an end, the presentation is at hand. He has beautified her. We saw that in Ephesians 5. Washing, removing, spot, wrinkle, sanctifying, cleansing, finally presenting a glorious church. And then in the section, and we'll deal with this as we go through, there is a final act of adornment. It's very beautiful. You think, well, she's fine as she is. Of course she is. And then she takes, as it were, that final little garment and puts it around her shoulders like almost a wedding shawl. It's a garment, you know, that she wove for her adornment to please him in the coming wedding day. Says that in the verse, I'll explain it to you. Given to her to be clothed in that linen fine and bright. And that linen is made up of the righteous acts of the saints. We'll deal with that again. So I'll make it clear to you. I think it's a lovely scene. Lovely scene. You can just see the bride getting herself ready, can't you, to come out into the public display. And the bridegroom is there. She hears it come to meet her and is ready and watching and waiting. And then just before she comes through the closed doors, as it were, she just puts this wedding shawl about her shoulders. Not to cover up, but to enhance and to please the bridegroom she's going to meet. That's what it is, you see. Those acts of righteousness in service in the preparation time that she or we would be getting ready in order to be, have something to lay at his feet. I'll deal with that later in a moment. It's very beautiful, very beautiful. So what does it start off with in verse 7? Excuse me, in verse 7, let's go to it. <clears throat> verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice. Well, you've got to admit that verse is right. That part of the verse is right. Let us be glad and rejoice. Why? Well, we're at a wedding. At a funeral, you're sad and you weep. Why? Because there's been a parting. At a wedding, you're glad and you rejoice. Why? Because there's a meeting, not a party. No. And not only that, we're going to give the honour and the glory to him. Now you say, that's a bit unusual. It's almost as though at this wedding, the really the key figure is the bridegroom. Now, I haven't been to too many weddings like that, have you? You're all wanting to look at the bride, you know? I know it was my wedding, who was I? <laughs> Just standing on the side. It was the lady that walked down the aisle, you see. <laughs> and I don't suppose anybody's any different. Of course we're not. But here the emphasis is firstly is, let us give honour and glory to him. Why? Well, the whole point is this, is we've actually already shown you. She's there because of him. You know, she owes absolutely everything to him. Everything. She is what she is because of him. 
Therefore, you can hear a voice joining in with the company of the redeemed of the Lord and those that serve him, both great and small, saying, Give honour to him. Fellow Christian, it's right, you know. It's right. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at my glory, but on the King of grace. Not on the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. For the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Isn't that beautiful? Can we not just rise above all the stupidity of the world we live in? Hey, the confusion of the life that we live in seven days a week, six or seven days a week, among an ungodly society, in turmoil, running everywhere in fear, and we fix our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We'll all be there because of him, dressed in beauty that's not our own. Yet, there's that fight. Excuse me, the final touch of adornment. Now, in verse 7 again, let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him for the marriage of the Lamb. That's what it's called. <clears throat> and rightly so. It's his central figure and his wife <clears throat> has made herself ready. You notice that, his wife. Now, we mentioned this last week, I'll repeat it again. The bride is what we are, she is at the wedding. The wife is the ongoing relationship. You don't stay at a wedding feast all the time, forever, do you? Where they part, and they, they enter into the good of the relationship which they have formed at the wedding. And here is the twofold application here. The bride in all her beauty is what she is at the wedding and the wondrous joy of meeting and the union which comes together and the wife is the ongoing enjoyment of that union and of that relationship. Right? Mind you, and I just got to speak bluntly, husbands, I don't care how long you've been married, your wife should still be your bride. Maybe we'd hold marriages together a bit better if we thought about that. You go home, fellas, and look at that wedding album. And look at what you thought of her on the day when you saw her coming down that aisle and why you put her there, why you called her to you. Why did you do it? What are those things in the past? Don't lose them. Don't lose them. Marriages are fragile these days because of the world we live in. They know nothing about Christ and his church. That's why. They don't know that. You see, we come and... We speak at the wedding and we say about the relationship... Till death us do part. But you know something? Death doesn't exist anymore here. Death doesn't exist anymore. So death will never part us from the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of our hearts. This is a scene of eternal permanency. There's nothing going to break this link. There's nothing going to separate us again. There's nothing going to cause us to be ever parted from our Lord and this is in the final and eternal and literal sense I was reading a book once by the great Marcus Lone and if you ever find a book by him just read it there are beautiful sermons in there he was once the Archbishop of Sydney one of the best evangelical archbishops that the nation has ever had and he's quoted a little poem about the finality and fullness and continuing permanency of the love between Christ and his own the stars shall shine over the earth and the stars shine over the sea. The stars look up to a mighty God. The stars look down on me. The stars may shine for a million years, 
a million years and a day. But Christ and I shall live and love when the stars have passed away. That's what we're looking forward to. That's the idea going from the bride, right, the ceremony, to the enjoyment of what that ceremony formed and being the wife. It's the beginning of a relationship of eternal love and happiness. That's what we've got here. That's what we've got here. Still in verse 7. The last phrase. His wife has made herself ready. This is lovely. She's made herself. She's prepared herself for this grand event of meeting the Lord. Do you realise that? That's what we're doing right now. Did you know that? That's what the waiting time's for. You're preparing yourself to be ready to meet him. So that you do have something to lay at his feet. You do show him when you get there the appreciation you've had of him and for him throughout the journey of life. You know, when he, he led you. All the way my saviour leads me. And you express that appreciation by the life that you have lived. And she's prepared herself in the waiting time of her betrothal to be ready to have something, as it were, to flip her on, around her shoulders that will be pleasing to him. That's the picture we've got here. And she wears a garment which she herself has woven. This garment is made up of the righteous acts of the saints. That's the meaning there. This is the garment for her adornment. It is not the garment for her acceptance. There's the difference. She's arrayed in it, the idea of adornment. It was given to her to be arrayed. It's like the, the finishing touch to bring out the inherent beauty which she has derived from him. Arrayed. Think of the word arrayed. Where else in the Bible is the word arrayed used? Behold the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You stand back and you look at the lily and you see the beauty coming out. This is the point. There it is in the plant, but the beauty is now coming out in perfect, perfect display. And this is the point here. When it comes to the basic garment for acceptance the bridegroom has looked after that he has made her holy he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and it's because of him and his worth that he has clothed us with already at the day we were saved it's because of that we are now accepted before God and we will be seen there as perfect in Christ but now there is this wedding garment, as it were, this final little touch, which is made up of the righteous acts of the saints, which when she puts it on, brings out something, just the finishing touch of beauty. And it's garment that is clean and bright, it's made up of righteous acts. And let me put it this way in simplicity. Every time we do a work for him, a little more is woven into that garment. You say, well, that's easy. Do you know something? <laughs> I won't get too carried away. One day I'll do Matthew 6 with you and I'll do the Sermon on the Mount. And I tell you what, it's, quite, it's not as easy as you think to do a work for the Lord. Because you know what happens? You do a work for the Lord and then you think, oh, that was good. And then you go and tell somebody about it, don't you? And they say, oh, you're such a fine fellow. I don't know how you're such a godly man like that, you know. 
You know the problem there? Suddenly it becomes a work I did for myself. And you know the problem then? People start to praise me for what I've done. And you know the big problem then? You've lost, you've, you've had your reward. There's nothing up there for you. You've had it. Careful. Never blow your spiritual trumpet. Not that there is a spiritual trumpet. But that's what happens so often. We like to do things to be seen of men, it constantly says. You can pray, says the Lord in that section of the Sermon on that. You can actually pray to be seen of men. You can do arms to be seen of men. Well, don't think there's a stitch ever got woven into that garment of righteousness, that garment of righteous acts that you're wearing the glory by and by. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a shake-up sometimes when you face that. Better to work unseen and to serve unnoticed. Much better. Better to leave the reward and the comment with the Lord. Better to do that. Pardon me, but I will use a blunt illustration, and I know Martin won't mind me saying it. But there's no doubt about the fact that he's done many a thing for the Lord. But the day he draws attention to himself and starts to talk about the things he has done and feel glorified about them is the day he'll lose his reward. And he knows that, don't worry. (laughs) That was pretty harsh, wasn't it? See the danger of the whole thing? Woe when men speak well of you. All right, when you're getting the praise of man... Go easy, lest you might find you're not getting the praise of God in the day to come. You've had your reward. That's how strong it is. So there it is. Every time we do a work for him, and every time our character is changed, every time it's moulded more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, so a little more of that garment is woven. And that's normal. We are changing. I trust that you and I are just growing. Sometimes it takes a long way, a long time. You know, we have these... Well, it's a bit like natural, natural growth. You know, there's this spurt of adolescence and, and then it all slows down. <laughs> you see, and sometimes when you first say this, a, a spurt of growth because you start to see things differently and change your life and then you settle into a bit of a ridge and you're pretty pleased with yourself and happy with where you are. Stop, you're not growing. Keep, look again, you're not weaving. You're not weaving, you see. And then we see the idea of um, righteousness is to be brought in line with God. And this is the righteous acts of the saints. Every act we perform in line with God adds, as it were, another thread, another stitch, another little bit in the garment that we weave to wear in that coming day in order to show our love back to our heavenly bridegroom. You've got to get it a bit, and I am going to develop this a bit more. You have to understand that good works are an essential part of our salvation. You say, what? Not by works of righteousness that we have done. We're not saved by our good works. Of course not. Good works don't achieve, they don't earn salvation, but they always accompany salvation. Always. You can't be saved and not show a change in your life and in your behaviour and works that suddenly become in the sight of God as good works. It's not normal. <clears throat> You've got um, the Lord Jesus again in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that, that men might see your upright works, your righteous works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Because they'll see what he's done in your life that changed you. And they'll say, that's not him. You know, That's not Tom Clifford down there. No, that's not Nick Spencer down there doing that. That's God that did it in that man. Somebody did. Somebody changed him. They'll see your upright works. See the works of righteousness. 
It's Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. It says about we are saved, we are his workmanship, and we are. I mean, we are what we are because of him. We are forgiven, we are redeemed. We are washed whiter than the snow. We are clothed with a garment of righteousness. He did all that. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. God saved you, and he prepared beforehand a life of good, upright, righteous works for you to walk in them and to live in that way until you meet him face to face. That's what he's saying there. <clears throat> it's exactly what James is writing about in his epistle. <clears throat> you know, the epistle to James where he talks about faith and he talks about works. And he says to me, you want me to show you my faith? He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to give you the creed I subscribe to. No. I'm not even going to give you a testimony about how I got saved. No. He says, you want to see my faith? I'll just show you my works. And the life that I'm living, the character of it, the kind of it, the aim of it, the direction of it, the ambition of it, that life will be a proof that God has saved me and that I've got a true faith as a gift of God. That is what he's saying in his epistle. Faith, true faith, always accompanied by works. And probably, I will mention it again in 1 John chapter 2, you have an exactly the same thought with a warning. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28 says, Now, little children, abide in him. I love that, because that's just the relationship. Abiding, oh how wondrous sweet. Abiding, you know? You're there to stay. And here it doesn't say abide near him. It doesn't say even abide by him. You see how the two are becoming one, don't you? This union thing we talked about. Abide in him. That's remarkable. In him. You can't get a more descriptive or a, a better description or a closer description or a description of a closer relationship. In him. Now little children, he says, abide in him that when he shall appear we may have confidence that means the idea of a, a certain boldness, really. You know, you, you, you're shining bright, if you like, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, now, watch that. Where did shame first come into the teaching of the Bible? It came in Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, when the first sin came in. They were ashamed. They were, they were naked. They didn't have a covering. They didn't have a garment. You see the point? And suddenly they were standing there, stark as it were, before God as to what they really were. So shame, nakedness, covering. Now he says, you be very careful, you abide, you live in the enjoyment of the relationship which was established. And he said, you're not to be ashamed before him at his coming. Because if you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone that practices or does righteousness is born of him. In other words, get on with weaving that garment which is the righteous acts of the saints. 
Get on with those works which accompany salvation. You know the Lord who saved you is righteous. Will you get on and practice that righteousness and not be ashamed of his coming? Why is it? So that you'll have that garment of adornment arrayed in something. The fine linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints, which when is it where you get there, you've got living proof of the fact you loved him and you kept his commandments and you just wanted to please him. Feeble, yes. Stumbling, yes. Full of wrinkles, yes. Full of spots, yes. Full of all such things. But then in that day, all removed and the honest evidence is there by the life that you've lived out of love for your Lord. That's why the Christian does not live and never continues ever to live a careless, a sinful, a dissolute life of unfruitfulness for God. It doesn't happen. I'm sorry. It does not happen. It should never be encouraged. It shouldn't. And you are parents here. Don't encourage it in your children. There's such a common error today, a common sort of thing. Oh, well, they grow up and they, you know, it's like a going through a certain phase, like a, a Jonah experience. But, you know, the Lord will work with them and the Lord will bring them back. And you see the fellow saying it is the one who wasted his own youth. And he doesn't realise he can't restore the years which the locusts have eaten. And you can't. You young people, you waste your life now. You will never catch up quite. I ask, could ask any of the older people here who have known what it is to have wasted those early years. And there's many of us. By the grace of God, we are where we are. Isn't it true? You never quite catch up. You feel a certain deficit. You think, if only I'd not wasted those years. Well, here it is this morning. It encourages our hearts. It warns us and it warms us because those sinful lives and those wasted years will be like marring the possible potential of the beauty that we can be arrayed within that day for the glory of our heavenly bridegroom. Very beautiful, isn't it? I've only got about a quarter of the way through the sermon this morning. But I think the Lord's going to bless us with what we've got. And next week we're going to look at the current situation, our current union with Christ. May the Lord bless us. May he encourage us to live better lives for him. May he help us to look ahead to a glory, the eternal glories gleam afar to nerve our faint endeavour. So then to watch, to work, to war, and so to rest forever. Amen. Father, we just give thanks this morning for the blessing truths that we've read about, the pictures that are in the pages of Scripture, the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, the wonder of one who is our saviour, our shepherd, and our friend, our guide, our guide and our guard, right to the end, the wonder of one who came and called us by his grace. The wonder our Father of a Saviour who shed his blood and dealt with our sins. Of a priest who brought us to God. Of a king who subdued our rebellion and sinful natures. And of one who will finally present us all to himself, a glorious church. Not having any spot or any wrinkle or any such thing. But to be holy and without blemish and to enjoy the vast ocean of love which we can never span for the days of time of all eternity. 
So unto him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, we bow this morning. We give glory, we give honour, and we would see power and majesty and might forever and ever. Amen.